All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, my father John, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast streaming apps where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show. Well, as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up about 460 points or 1.3%. The S&P 500 last week was up about 34 points, or eight-tenths of 1%. And the NASDAQ for the week was up less than two points, so we'll call that flat for the week. Uh, Year-to-date, the Dow is down 4.4%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is down 7%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is down 12%. Thank you, Jeff. Well, we've got uh, Dad making uh, an encore appearance on the Money Wise program. and I, I Second for the year, second for the year. Second for the year, and I think we've mentioned on past shows that you're going to try to be on at least once a month to uh, to bring your loose cannon and some of the uh, some of the, the, the historical facts about Wall Street. So as, we, as all of our clients know, you're quite a historian for the market and have passed along that, uh, that affinity for market history onto Jeff and myself. I was around 10 more years than uh, Jim Kramer. <laughs> got a That's little a bit more seasoning. No, you got That's a little a bit more seasoning. While he was sleeping in his car, you were, you yes. were making trades. So. I, I was uh, trying to make money for Ross Perot. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Which was not too hard to do. <laughs> so we made the entire week and basically from after lunch on Friday. So how many times have we seen this where the entire week is made on the last day of the trading week? Well, the, 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 the broader story to last week is that doesn't show up in the numbers that I gave at the beginning of this segment is how many days in the week just passed were there intraday moves in the market of a thousand points or more? I believe it was it was it Monday at one time we were down 900 points and closed up 100. I can't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday that that occurred. Uh, Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay. And then on Wednesday, 
the day of the infamous Federal Reserve meeting, the meeting to end all meetings, the most watched meeting of all times in capitalism. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I'm being... Do you know that for a fact? I'm just making that up, Dad. Oh, okay. Like, no, tongue I, is deep Of course, it, my tongue is so deep in these big cheeks. I mean, give me a, <laughs> give me a break. I mean, Alan Greenspan would be coming out of his, his bathtub if that was true. <laughs> so let, let's just say that there was a lot of buildup for the financial entertainment press for the meeting that had occurred on Wednesday. And I, I believe after the the news was announced, the markets moved up higher by, by the end of the day. It had a big reversal. We ended up closing negative for the day. The, no, number, the more, the number well, the of, more he talked, the more he yeah. talked, the lower the market went. Well, it's it, it was it was a very, very volatile week. And as we were just discussing before we started recording this weekend show, I know that the very first week of the year, um, quickly, you know, shortly after we did the giant, you know, massive rebalance and all of our asset allocation models, the Fed had released the minutes from the December meeting where they had discussed shrinking the Fed's $9 trillion balance sheet, and that seemed to be the catalyst that started this corrective move that we've seen all this month. But what I felt that the computer algorithms and a lot of the financial entertainment press missed during Jay Powell's press conference after the Fed meeting on Wednesday is that Jay Powell said that the shrinking of their balance sheet was going to be the last tool in the toolbox, kind of the break glass in case of emergency policy change to help moderate the inflationary situation that we find. And it seems that the market ignored that statement. It seemed that the computer algorithms obviously missed that statement. But that, I thought, was a very important statement that was missed by everybody. I've you know, had conversations this past week with clients, and I said they missed it. If the correction started with the big concern that they were going to be shrinking their $9 trillion balance sheet, and if Jay Powell said this past Wednesday that that's the break glass in case of emergency policy move, then why did that not re-inju- you know, re- rejuvenate the markets to start – seeing some buying coming in, especially when we've got the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average below their 200-day moving average. And although I will say this, the S&P 500 closed on Friday just slightly above its 200-day moving average. And ladies and gentlemen, the last time the Dow, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ closed below their 200-day moving average, They all three did it at the exact same time on March 20th of 2020 in the depths of the COVID pandemic sell-off. And from that point to the end of last year, there was a nice, sizable gain in all three major indexes. Yeah, but I don't don't believe we should – uh, insinuate that that that, that investors should no. expect that kind of market movement over the next you know night uh, year and a half. I don't think that's going to no, happen no, at all. No, that that's not that's, what I'm saying. But but all, what I am saying though is that for investors that have cash sitting on the sidelines or under under invested in stocks, right around in here from a technical standpoint, this would be. The first time since March 20th of 2020 to put money back to work at these technical low levels. 
So just take that with a grain of salt because we are in a rising interest rate environment. We are in a more hawkish Fed policy. But again, we have to look further down the road. Long-term investing. That's what we have to keep our eye on. And we have to find buying opportunities. And right now, looking at the technicals, this can be a buying opportunity, but not all in all at once. You have to dollar cost average in over time. So let's hold that thought dead. Let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast streaming apps where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show so if you're just tuning into this weekend's money wise program just catching everybody up on the happenings of this past week on wall street again this entire month has been volatile but we saw quite a bit more volatility this past week where several days this past week more than a thousand point swings on the Dow jones industrial average and dad i know you wanted to to make a point, because before we went to break, I was talking about buying opportunities and the fact that we have all the three major indexes, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ, you know, trading well and below their 200-day moving average, minus the S&P, which was able to recover and close above its 200-day moving average, but still well off of its highs as of Friday's close. Well, this was not a generational low that was set this week. So that, that, that's the point I'm, I'm wanting to make. Yes, if you're buying here with the Dow and the S&P and the NASDAQ below their 200-day lines, you're not buying the high over the last year. That's, that's the only truthful statement. But it's way, way too early. And it would be hard to say that this low that occurred this week would be anything like what occurred in March of 2020. We may have that time later this year, but this wasn't it. But, but for the market to do this kind of corrective move over the rumor, because I think there's an old saying, selling of the rumor and buying of the news. And, and I think what we've seen so far this month is the market repricing in anticipation of the first rate increase by the Fed t- since 2018. It just seems like a garden variety correction to me. Well, sure. It, it, is, it is a just run-of-the-mill correction, although you, you tell that to most investors. No one likes to see their portfolio. Well, nobody down likes seven, to eight, lose nine. money oh. quickly. Yeah, Jeff. So we're all trying to put rational words together to explain irrational behaviors in the market. It's not rational in the absence of any real news, you know, like something geopolitical serious happened or a terrorist attack, you know, some real piece of news to explain a thousand point reversal in a single day in the market. There, there isn't no. anything rational that was occurring there. It was all irrational. Absolutely. And the irrational behavior continued all week long there was nothing that happened in the last hour two hours of the markets on friday 
to justify the Dow going up, what, 400 points in the last two hours? It's just the shorts coming in and covering because I didn't want to be long over the weekend because I don't know what's going to happen over the week, so the traders come in and cover. So there's three dimensions to this whole Fed question. The first dimension that, that investors have to reconcile is how far does the Fed have to raise their target range, meaning the Fed funds rate, which is right now at zero. The second, over what time period does it occur? And that's where all this disparity between the predictions. You know, Kyle is probably the lowest between all of us. You're calling for what, two this year, Kyle, or is it three? Well, well, two, two, two this year is what I've been saying, which we'll get into a little bit later, of okay. why I think the Fed has to move a lot slower. Right. I'm going to be a little bit higher than I think I said three to four, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not, I'm not sure what dad's on record, uh, how many times he thinks it's going to be raised. The third thing that, that, that investors have to get their hands around is this mix of the policy tools. It's the federal it's changes in the federal funds rate. It's you know the balance sheet runoff. How does the Federal Reserve use those tools? Kyle, you said in the last segment that you thought that the machines or investors on Wednesday missed the part where, where Chairman uh, Powell seemed to indicate that they would not use that tool, the tool of balance sheet runoff, until they had finished using other tools. Correct. Now, I'm not sure. But to me, I don't know that they necessarily – I think they just ignored it, to be quite honest. I think it was just just, just ignored. But at the end of the day, but what's, I mean, but, but, but what, what is what, – what, hold on. What, okay. what, why, you know, why do the markets have to get so wound up about quarter percent rate increases? <laughs> I couldn't agree more. You know, what is it about a quarter percent that makes that much difference? Got to talk about something. You know? Well, well see, that's the I mean, the, the real work is being done in the markets right now. I mean, I, I'm holding a piece of paper. I know our, rate, our listeners can't see. But it's how much interest rates have changed across the – everything else that the Fed doesn't control – which is 99% of the interest rate environment that the Fed doesn't doesn't control. So you know the 10-year 10-year treasury is up maybe 20 basis points this year. That's two tenths but, of one percent. But but how about the one the one-year treasury is up almost double. It started the year at less than four tenths of a percent, and now it's up to three quarters of a percent. The short end interest rate. The, the, the increase in interest rates at the short end is much higher than it is at the longer end, which is going to give some trouble, in my opinion, to the Fed's ability to pile on quarter percent rate increases one after the other, after the other, after the other. Hence, I've predicted two raises. Kyle's at two. I, I, I don't, that, that's I, that's yeah. one of many points of why. I, I am of the position that they don't know how many times they're going to raise it. Therefore, I don't know. Because they're not going to raise it one more time than they have to. I say the only job the Fed has this year is to save the Senate for the Democrats. That is their only job as far as the swamp is concerned. That's another reason for the two rates for what the point that dad just made, because we're in a midterm election year. And as I said on last weekend show, the house is toast. 
the GOP has taken over the House. They have a high probability of taking over the Senate. And if the Federal Reserve gets too aggressive in their interest rate policy and they really throw a cold bucket of water on the economy that's just getting a fuller head of steam behind it as we're emerging from a two-plus-year-long pandemic and all the different variants we've had to deal with, that is not going to look good. I mean, the first reading of fourth-quarter GDP came out this past week, and it read a 6.9% GDP growth. That is, as Rick Santelli said, hot, hot, hot. As goes the economy. So goes the market. It's an old saying on Wall Street. So the underlying economy is is doing extremely well. The problems with inflation, as we've been talking ad nauseum on this program, is coming from supply chain constraints, not demand. We know plus too much money in the system from all the stimulus that was put in last year. But all that money, Dad, is making to where the average household has more than almost 11% more cash to spend per month this year, we see consumer debt only increase 2.2%, which is some of the lowest we've seen this century. They've gotten debt-free. We've got banks parking trillions of dollars in overnight repos from excess loan reserves because they have no borrowers because the borrowers don't need any money. Because we have, So we have a decent economy that's going to be improving this year. Correct. We have a strong banking system that appears to have plenty of reserves. And pl- plenty of capital reserves. Very we, healthy. We have a Fed that's already on notice of saying we're going to raise rates if things look too hot and we're data dependent, just like we always are. Mm-hmm. And you've got a political situation where can we maintain the phony baloney jobs for the Democrats in the Senate? That is their only hope. If they don't do that, if they don't do that, then Biden is a total lame duck. Nothing will get through Congress for the next two years. The market would like that. The Fed then, after the election, they can raise rates to do whatever they want to do because Biden's gone, Kamala is gone, Buttigieg is running for president along with Hillary Clinton, but the odds of a Democrat being president in 2024 are—it's are, are, very slim, very slim, slim at this point. So the Fed will have to start becoming a little more beholding to the Republicans again. But that's after the election. So the only thing, you know, from my—I'm just being very cynical. The only thing the Fed is trying to do this year is save the Democratic Party's skin. That's it. Well, and they're not going to they're not worried about the economy because the economy is going to have a good year. The economy is going to have a good year. There'll be less supply problems. Inflation should come down some. But people aren't clamoring to buy cars because there's no cars. They're not clamoring to buy homes because no homes are being built. That's right. And until and there's such a lead time on that, given the semiconductor issue that that. The Fed can sit back there and, and slow jam the whole year, do whatever they want to do talk-wise, and their only hope is that Joe Biden has, you know, some more weeks like he had this week. This was the best week for Joe Biden this year. All right. Well, let's hold that thought. Let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing to recap Wall Street from this past week. And, Dad, you know, you're making the point about the Federal Reserve kind of slow jamming it. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. That's the reason why I've gone on record to say I think we're only going to see two interest rate increases this year, even though I know the Fed is way behind the curve. Because if you look at the real (laughs) Fed rate, if you look at the real Fed's fund rate, which is basically the overnight rates minus inflation, they're a negative seven. We haven't seen a negative seven real, real interest rate this entire century. I mean, even during the 2002 depths of the recession coming out of the dot-com bubble bursting, it was around three and a half negative. So we're double that right now. So even if the Fed raised rates 10 times at a quarter percent and got us to two and a half based on our current inflationary level, we're still, you know, at historically cheap. Yeah, that would that'd be still, historically cheap. No, it would be, we'd still be at a historically negative yeah. number. Even well, if yeah. they raised it 10 times. So that's right. There's only so, and like I've said on last weekend's show, they don't have the right tool. They have tools in their toolbox, but they've got a lot of flathead screwdrivers in the economy. And from an inflationary <laughs> standpoint, they need a they need a Phillips head. They need a Phillips head because, as we said, this you know, a flathead bankers. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of flathead governors, right? <laughs> yes. So they have the wrong tools. No Hispanic in- though. They've never. They don't have a Hispanic one in there. Well about equality and and, and diversification as far as the... Where's Jay Powell? I mean, did Jay Powell come out and say we need a Hispanic governor? Yeah. So... (laughs) Maybe they need a ball-peen hammer. I don't know. Yeah. So so they have have tools. They just don't have the right tools because the inflation that we're facing is from the supply chain issue from COVID. All this inflation was because of the COVID and the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the mandates, the lack of workers coming back to work, and we've got very strong demand. This the, the inflation hasn't been driven based on cheap money being borrowed and the, the U.S. households taking on and assuming a ton of debt with all this debt servicing costs. This isn't the same situation, and so – you know, looking at looking at the market, and I asked this question to you before we started the show, you know, how many professional money managers do we have in control of trillions of dollars who've only managed money post the financial crisis when they're, all they're used to is an accommodative Fed? They're only used to managing money when the Fed has the punch bowl out on the table for everyone to drink from pumping in all this liquidity into the market were you looking at the zoom call on the to uh, chairman powell the ages of the people that were asking questions of chairman powell 
the other day when you well, had the I Zoom and all of them were up there. There were a lot of young people. A lot of young people. A lot of young, well, of young well, Generally, those, those press conferences are attended by financial journalists and are not necessarily attended by folks managing money. I understand uh, that, but so, there's a lot of young people. I, I understand, and, and, and that's – and that kind of goes we we, we all we all can can uh, and I, I don't you may have seen some statistics Kyle I have I haven't seen them of what's the average age of a portfolio manager today who knows I mean I've heard statistics about the that the majority of the trading happening on a daily basis on, on in the by stock computer. exchange is by, by computer which means there's no humans which means there's a you know who programmed that algorithm. How old was the person that programmed the algorithm? You know, what what are the variables for that algorithm? We all know that those variables change on a minute to minute, hour by hour, day daily basis. And you know, what happened last week in the markets in those multiple days of seven hundred fifty thousand point uh, reversals? Those were not people pushing the buttons on all that. You don't have a thousand point re- reversal in an afternoon with pe- necessarily people making those decisions with, with a, well, there's basically no news that was all machines. And so as long-term investors on days like that, on weeks like this, you kind of just have to just forget about it. We're going to have these time, these types of time periods in the markets. It's been a long time since we've had a month like this, since we've had a week like just, that just passed in the last two weeks, it's been a, it's been a long time. And when it happens, everybody's coming out of the woodwork telling you this time it's different. It's different this time. <coughs> and here's why: A, B, C, D, E, F. You know, and at the well, end, of the- and it's and it's not. I mean, it 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 really isn't different. And the reason why I brought up the whole the whole topic about how many money managers have been managing money prior to the financial crisis is because I find it so ironic that when you look at the market from an historic standpoint, the markets actually perform better in a rising interest rate environment. And the reason being is, as I said earlier in this program, as goes the economy, so goes the market. The Federal Reserve steps in and makes adjustment to their interest rate policy to try to cool off an overheated economy to try to help stave off monetary inflation. That is a hot economy is positive for the stock market. So when you look at a falling interest rate environment, the market historically doesn't do as well because the Fed is coming in and cutting interest rates to try to rejuvenate the economy, to try to to get the economy getting a fuller head of steam behind it. And so the markets don't typically perform as well. But when you see how the market has been reacting so far this year during this classic corrective move, going into a rising interest rate environment, a first read of fourth quarter GDP of 6.9%, this historically would be positive for the stock market. But because we might have a high propensity of money managers that have only known a dovish Fed, they've never known a hawkish Fed, they're going to be selling. Or the computers, as Jeff said earlier, that are programmed by mathematicians and computer folks 
that might not have been programming algorithms prior to the financial crisis thinking, well, a hawkish Fed equals bad for the stock market. Well, and there's one other thing. that's not true. One other thing that we have not discussed that's out there that's the elephant in the room. Remember, the, the funding of the national debt has to be done on a regular basis. And the cost of paying that interest weighs upon the deficits that we have to face. And it behooves the Fed to keep rates as low as possible for as long as possible because of the massive debt that both parties have have put upon the shoulders of the country. And so we don't want interest rates to go back to normal levels until we got deficits back to normal levels. And the problem's going to be we can't get deficits back to normal level until we get the Alan Volcker-type Federal Reserve chairman in there that's going to have to turn the screws to the economy. And that's not happening under this administration. And honestly, I don't see it happening by any of the the leaders, shall we say, in Washington. It's got to be the newer generation that's going to face these burdens. It's got to be the people your age, Kyle, and younger that's going to have to come to realize, you know, what that that yoke is going to be around their necks that they're going to have to pay for because of all of this generosity of both parties over the last 10 years. But here's the other thing. The Federal Reserve also has to be very careful not to put the screws to the economy as we're still recovering from no, the I understand pandemic. That. I, I understand that. definitely not the time to do it. And, and, and these supply chains might be unwinding and, and loosening up well into 2023 and beyond. Because, you know, you were mentioning the car situation. You know, I'm, I'm starting to see a revolt in the used car market. People are not wanting to pay up for these used cars and saying, you know what, I'm just going to hang back and wait. Because I heard this past week that a, the majority of the semiconductor chips have already been accounted for for 2022, meaning they're already bought. They might not be completely produced yet, but the supply is already gone already in January of 2022 for the entire year. So, you know, when you see someone like Intel bringing the supply chain back in the U.S., building a chip plant out in Arizona, going to be breaking ground on a chip plant in Ohio, I commend them. I applaud them. I had a conversation with a client about it who owns it in his portfolio, and he said, I'm glad you guys own Intel. I'm happy you own Intel because they're bringing it back home, and more companies need to do that. I want that stock in my portfolio because they're bringing it home. That's what I think is going to be the really the long game of this whole entire thing is the, is the coronavirus could wind up being a very big nail into – China's economy in the long run when corporate America realizes we need to bring our supply chain back away. Well, I hope so. I hope they recognize that. I hope the country recognizes that. I don't know that we're there yet, though, Kyle. No, not yet. But I'm talking long game. I'm talking five, seven, ten years from now. The lessons that we have learned from this COVID pandemic that started over in China might wind up infecting their economy for generations to come. Let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. 
Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So we're in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. And we were talking about this during commercial break. And I mentioned it earlier in the program where we see, you know, we had seen the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500 all below their 200-day moving average, which the last time we saw that occur was on March 20th of 2020 in the depths of the COVID pandemic correction before the market started moving back into an up pattern. And so as I've been saying in conversations I've had with clients is that this month, it seems that the market is trying to handicap when the Federal Reserve is going to be doing their first rate increase and by how much. Now, I'm on record saying I don't think we're going to see a 50 basis point move, the first move coming in March. I think we're all in agreement that the Fed's going to make their first interest rate increase in March, the same month that the quantitative easing, the bond buying they've been doing since the pandemic is going to end. But I don't think they're going to slap the market across the face with a 50 basis point no. or half a 1% increase. So it'll be a quarter of 1% increase. Yes. So are we going to see the markets just kind of churning, kind of doing the cha-cha, two steps forward, two steps back until we finally get the, you know, until the news is absolutely solidified and the Fed raised rates, it's at 25 basis points, and now we're data dependent for our next rate increase? What do you I think, think so. That? I agree with that. So you think we could just be seeing churning here in the market, this continued level of volatility well into March. So pretty good chunk of this first quarter. We've had many periods in in the last 30 years managing money where the markets had this, was this range bound market. Uh, I remember going, you know, 18 months, many, many times where, where we were just stuck in this range. Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying that's exact. That's what we're headed towards right now, but we could certainly stay in range up until we get that first interest rate increase in in March. Uh, the The question I think the investors have right now is, you know, for those that are that maybe are too over allocated to the high PE names, or too over allocated to stocks in general, or too over allocated. To, to growth um, and have you know double digit negative returns month to date you know they're wondering should I you know should I be selling some of this here should I should I expect us to go back to all time highs here in the next sixty days before the the interest rate increase is likely to happen um, or you know, you know what should I be doing here in ter- in my portfolio. Um, and that's, you know, when you're, it's definitely got a lot of folks wound up and maybe a little bit scared, but that's tip, you know, that's what we've been warning our listeners about is not get complacent to have this year after year after year of double digit returns 
that the likelihood of there being another year of double digit returns uh, was was the probabilities were very low, and we were we were advocating folks, you know, change the mix in their portfolios, just as we have. Um, but not also to get overly emotional either. Not, and not to get overly emotional. There has been no systemic change to the market. There has been no systemic shift in the market. This and there really is a, a correction. <laughs> Can you really say that the Fed is truly that much more hawkish than it was a couple of months ago? No. <laughs> I mean, they're really not. And, and, and having Jay Powell at the helm, he, he speaks in plain English, but I think that what the market or the computers didn't like is they don't like a lack of clarity from the Federal Reserve. And so there is hand-wringing going on. Is it a quarter of 1%? Is it a half of 1%? I think the cards have already been laid out on the table. That first rate increase is happening in March. But I have to remind all of the listeners, and for those that caught it, didn't catch it earlier in this program, historic numbers have shown that the stock market over the longer, medium, and longer-term time periods do better and perform better in a rising interest rate environment because that means the economy is stronger. And there are a lot of green shoots out there. Strong consumer, flush with cash, low debt. They're not going out and borrowing money and spending it. So they're not adding to their, their, their household balance sheet. And so, yes, they've had less products to be able to buy because of the supply chain constraints. And the, the, the faster we get used to, unfortunately, having to live with COVID in our everyday life for many, many years to come, it's not going away. Each person has to take it upon themselves to protect themselves and their family, do what they feel is right. But we have to get back to life as usual. And trust me, I have lost a couple of very good friends of mine to this disease. And it's not fun. And, and it's unfortunate that it's happened to anybody, and God bless, that have been affected by it. But we have to get back to life. We have to get back to life as normal. And the faster we do that, the faster inflation comes down, and we just get back to some more normalcy. And the Fed raising rates, like you said, Jeff, by 25 basis points, that's not overly hawkish. They've been at a zero Fed's fund rate for going on two years now. And with quantitative easing, we got to get back to some normalcy. And what is that normal Fed fund rate? It's anybody's guess. But I reminded a client in a conversation I had on Friday, back in 2007, when the markets were hitting all-time highs, the federal funds rate, or not the Fed fund rate, but the 10-year Treasury was at 4.65%. So markets can make new highs with a 4 4.5% 10-year Treasury, which I don't think we're getting back to any time in the near future. And I'm sure you gentlemen would probably agree with that. So next week we've got a bunch of more earnings coming out. One of the, you know, some more big tech name earnings, Microsoft being one of them. How about uh, Apple crushing it and knocking the cover off the ball? Right, but, and, and the stock was rewarded. I'd been more concerned if the stock wasn't, was not rewarded for that on Friday, but the stock was. So that was encouraging that maybe for the shorter term, we're going to, we're going to take a trend up. And so for those investors that I was speaking to earlier in the segment that may feel like they're, they have too much in stocks and too much in growth or too much in, in, in uh, big cap tech, you may get an opportunity to 
lighten up your allocations here in the next few weeks at higher prices. I don't think we're going back to all-time highs in the next two weeks, but maybe it's time to think about changing your asset allocation in in that respect. No more than 5% of your assets in any one individual stock. That is our rule. No more than 5%. So know what you own. Don't get complacent. And if you have any questions or want to take advantage of that portfolio review and analysis from the Money Wise guys, you give us a call. Well, with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we're going to take the break, go into the news, and when we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education. And the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand, and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. 
Um, and the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an actual an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors again goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, we're registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial to use advisor. financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It it, it does, and a, again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401ks and of course and Barack, president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the department of labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards securities and exchange commission why don't you put these standards in as well and mary jo white the head of the sec makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years. So why is it just being intensely studied over just the last couple of months? Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? 
Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, yeah, the story. The no, you didn't check the clock. The 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 real world example I'm going to give, and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, 
the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting, I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha. Got it. Understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay. Comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure. Why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers, at different offices, at different firms, in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity. That annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. 
And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial well, advisors, wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker if he or she holds a Series 7 securities license. If he or she does, then it's, it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And it's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress well, this enough in that example, to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds as a fiduciary, we have to go with the government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable, what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to it, to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it, I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interest in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's, a, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for? Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand 
broker dealers. I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important and when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand and really I think what also led a lot of investors to to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker dealer or stock brokerage type firms and so we'll get into that when we come back from the from the commercial break you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906 0070 or toll free at 1 800 275 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients, as a mutual fund wholesaler, were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, and every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds and some not so good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now again, this was in the late '90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, it's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. Because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, 
I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were, the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid, let's, let's get some money on the sidelines, let's get some cash on hand? And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue-sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio, we could bet the potential client you own one of these funds from a particular fund family just because we've been doing this you know in our 26th year of business and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years we see a pattern we see a trend and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms it's no surprise now listeners are probably you know y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking well gosh how can brokerage firms do this it's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it's They're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, yeah, I, well, no. no, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fun families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas. And they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners. And I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, Yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. He sounds the off- part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. 
Will you, and, and he asked him, would you give me the account? Well, sure we would. And he said, would you like to know what my experience is? And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ. And he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show, about just the number of don't, – don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you, think, making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because, again, it's all marketing. Um, but, you know, I, will, I do want to talk about uh, financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show, and – Financial planning has has really become a, a really booming industry. And there are designations, a certified financial planner, which is a very difficult designation to get. You have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But... You have to be very, very careful how this potential financial how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask, as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee-only? Are you fee-based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission? And you need to ask those questions. And if they're not giving you a straight answer, that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away. You, as a prospective client, have the right to ask a straight-up straight question and get a straight-up answer. Ask them, do you have your Series 7? If they have a Series 7, pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions. And that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard, if they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission. And being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, and you know what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, 
typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name, and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily. But you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months, I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. To so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line is dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, and doing what's called a broker check. By Googling, broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in high the school, yeah, the in high school you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U four. 
and it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I found a gentleman here in town, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have. Going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business. Um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Cool. I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. Though that's really what they're there for. They, you can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day -day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand, the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm 
or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with. They won't know you from Adam. And you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets. You can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. From my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.